This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. We owe to the Middle Ages the two worst inventions of humanity, once quipped André Morois, romantic love and gunpowder. My guest today has dedicated his talents to that dreadful period. I am delighted to be joined by historian, author, columnist and broadcaster Dan Jones. Hello, Dan. Hello, Alex. His books include The Plantagenets, Magna Carta, The Templars, Crusaders, and with Marina Amaral, The Color of Time and The World Aflame. Although I was devastated to find out they do not include The Big Book of Gin. That's a different Dan Jones. <laughs> He's a prolific and award-winning columnist. He has also written and hosted many TV shows, including The Wonderful Secrets of Great British Castles. Dan... What is the most difficult gin cocktail to get right? <laughs> <laughs> I get to make, I'm not sure. I, I like to have them made for me. Uh, the most difficult, the, the easiest one to drink is the, is the martini, which I, I'm, I'm very fond of. We are, of course, not here to discuss gin cocktails, but your scintillating new book, Powers and Thrones, which is out today. Dan, the tagline of the book is a new history of the Middle Ages. Now, you have covered big dramatic arcs in previous books, but never have you attempted to do a thousand plus years in one go. What possessed you to even attempt such madness? <laughs> well, I guess the, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of ways of answering that. One's historical and one's kind of personal psychological. And, and historically, I'd been working towards it in a sense, not that I'd, I'd sort of plan from the outset to write this book. But as you've said, I'd written small histories of popular rebellion, the Peasants' Revolt, of constitutional mm. process, Magna Carta, of a dynasty, the Plantagenets, of the Crusades, which covered several centuries. And I was itching to find some way to put together lots of different parts of the Middle Ages. So not mm. just the uh, constitutional political, not just the religious, and not just the military, but to, to wind all those together with stories that were also dynastic, economic, artistic, architectural, musical. Yes, there's a lot of art and religion in the in the book. It's, it's almost the most prominent uh, uh, aspect of it. Well, I suppose that's because I've, it's the bit that I've written about least in the past. Mm. But I, I also... I mean, I'm all writers. This is my 10th book. And that's partly the answer to the psychological question. I'm, I'm superstitious to some extent about numbers. My 10th book, I've just turned 40. I wanted to write something that was big to go along with those, those round numbers. Uh, but I'm also, as, as you get older or more experienced at any rate, you become more aware of what you're good at or not good at or drawn to as a writer. And I like the big, the epic the, the tableau piece, and, and I love the challenge of putting together large numbers of stories into mm. one coherent whole. So this felt like a, a challenge I could get my teeth into. 
Well, were there times during the process when you thought, I'm an idiot, Hilary Mantel would have got three bestsellers out of this research? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm always thinking I'm an idiot. But as a writer, I'm quite structural. And so I had a, a fairly robust architectural plan, if you like, for yes. this this book. And it was always going to be 16 chapters. And I knew what those chapters were going to be. And they didn't differ as I went through. And so again, this is part of the ex- of being more experienced as a writer, I could never mm. have written this 10 years ago, I would have just spent the whole time you know, just quivering in terror at the magnitude of the task. So either I've become sort of more gung ho and idiotic, or just more sort of confident, or maybe they're the same thing. Uh, <laughs> I, with my writing. And so no, I, it was also, it's sorry to be boring. And we're all sick of talking about this, but also pan, the pandemic was helpful in some ways, in that I had a lot of time to devote to this one big project. Now, you tell the story primarily, although not exclusively, through a series of essentially interconnected and really quite witty mini-biographies. So it's non-fiction, but it has a sort of narrative momentum because you're talking about real people and their stories always. Who's your favourite? Now, you're a big fan of tattoos, right? You're, you're inked with quite a lot of body art. Which historical figure from your book deserves permanent space on your body? Well, there's all, there is a one historical figure on my body already. Oh, uh, my goodness. I'm not sure he's actually in the book. It's Edmund the Martyr being martyred by the Vikings. And I, it's not there because I particularly admired Edmund the Martyr. Um, I thought he was quite silly the way he dealt with the Vikings. But it is a sort of cool, warry image, which is appropriate to a tattoo. Right. But put that aside, my favourite character in the book is one I, I wanted to write a biography of some years ago and didn't. It's Dick Whittington. And he appears in a chapter, it's called Merchant, the chapter. It's about the commercial revolution of the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. Uh, And Whittington, of course, is uh, late 14th, early 15th century. And it turns out he's not just mayor of London, but also Calais. He's an extraordinary figure. (laughs) And, And all the more extraordinary because of how far the image of Whittington has has deviated in popular imagination. He's the panto character with a sort of prodigal cat and a knapsack on his back who becomes mayor of London. But the real character was an oligarch who had incredibly close links with five different regimes in England, the regimes of five different kings, who made more money than almost anybody else of his day, who managed not to get himself killed yet was still highly involved in politics, which included the revolution that deposed Richard II, Mm. who dabbled in cloth trade, in selling hostages taken on the battlefield, who drummed up loans that underpinned the Agincourt campaign. He was a truly extraordinary person. And the root of his power, and this book, Powers and Thrones, is, if nothing else, a meditation on different forms of power in the Middle Ages. The root of his power was money, and the, the source of his money was the exploding and incredibly sophisticated late medieval economy. I'd go to see that, Panto. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be on your own. Rob, I'll, I'll come with you. So <laughs> on, on the second, I read the book twice because actually the first time I struggled to grapple with the sheer size of it, if you know what I mean, the scope of its coverage. The second time I read it, it seemed to me very, very clear that the book's 
primary interest in the past is how it leads to today. That was really palpable in it. It's a sort of historical psychoanalysis, exploring past trauma, but with a view to resolving what's going on today, which made it a little bit reminiscent of Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror. In that sort of therapy parallel, what was your big breakthrough? You know, the, the event that seemed so directly linked to the here and now that it made this approach click for you. And you said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to it's going to be a retrospective, essentially. You're an incredibly perceptive reader because that was exactly the purpose of the book. And Tuckman's Distant Mirror was exactly its inspiration. I designed this book after a conversation with my publisher, Anthony Cheatham, chairman of Head of Zeus, a UK publisher. I said I wanted to do a big book. And he said, Sack of Rome to Sack of Rome, 410 to 1527, the whole of the Middle Ages. Okay, so it's impossible to tackle that task without having a a take, if you like, a, mm, a, a route into it. And it struck me that the Middle Ages is one of the most traduced periods in the popular imagination. Medieval itself is an insult. Right? And I wanted to show how the medieval world, I did not necessarily wanted to turn this idea of the medieval world as sort of barbaric and cruel and dark and, and awful on its head and pretend it was all kind of goodness and light and, and wonder and beauty, mm. but to say... This world is not that different to our own. And the things that animate these people are not that different to the things that animated us. And so I thought, okay, well, what are the things that animated, animate us? Climate change? Well, absolutely. That's not man-made climate change, but fluctuations in the natural mm. climate have a profound impact on uh, of the course of the Middle Ages. Pandemic disease. I was designing a book before COVID-19, but, you know, it went along, came along and proved the theory. It was, we'd had SARS not so long before. There was this idea that, that pandemic disease was one of the big, if not the biggest threats to uh, global stability. It was certainly a, a massive threat in the Middle Ages with Black Death, Justinianic Plague and so on. Technological revolution, periods of extraordinary technological yes. revolution in the Middle Ages. And uh, there were a couple of others. Mass migration as well, I, I felt was very important to us and, and was also a, a factor in the Middle Ages. There wasn't one particular event. As I say, I, I started working on this before COVID-19. That, in a way, I might have shied away from it had I mm. been thinking about it, this approach, had I been thinking about it now, because it would have seemed a little bit too trite and obvious to go, oh, well, COVID. Yeah, like, let's right do there. pandemic and climate change. Uh, you know, I started working on it in 2018, 2019. And at that time, it felt like sort of a bit more of a, a far-out idea than it's, it's proven to be in just two years. But the parallels are, are, are occasionally quite hard to believe, okay? As a Greek, I was instantly drawn to the section on Byzantium. There one finds the musings of Procopius of Caesarea, once a top advisor and chief sycophant to Justinian, who later fell out spectacularly with him and made it his mission to undermine him <laughs> with his writings, targeting much of his venom on Empress Theodora, his consort. And I am reading this as Dominic Cummings is writing 6,000-word blogs on how awful Boris Johnson is, how it is Carrie Simmons controlling him. And I'm, and I'm thinking, Dan made this up. He made this person up. <laughs> it's a sort of thinly veiled fiction. Do you find yourself just filtering current events through that lens? Is it a useful thing? Does it lend perspective? Well, it makes it easy to 
for people to get a handle on. And um, one thing I've, I've learned this more and more over the last 15 years or so, particularly do, when I do book tours, because when I do book tour, I do a sort of, it's not quite a one man show, but it's not a, a presentation either. It's, it's a sort of, when I've been writing about the Crusaders or the Templars or Plantagenets or whatever, I've tried to give the show a, a little bit more of a topical spin than I have traditionally in the books. As you've noticed, as I was writing this, the, the the sort of then and now comparisons just leapt at me. Now, you've got to be careful with that in a book. One reason is it's great to make a joke about Dominic Cummings and Procopius, and I think it's actually it's, it's a, that's a brilliant um, comparison. It would really works. However, without wishing to do down Dom Cummings, he may not be around or that important in about 20 years' time, <laughs> and I want people to get the jokes, if you see what I mean. Um, oh, I hope he is, listens. He'll hate this. <laughs> sorry, I, I also think that you've got to be careful because it look it can be quite trite. What I've what I've done in this book is put most of those kind of jokes in the footnotes so that they are mechanically easy to skip over on the page. Because there's one in there about in the chapter about the first Islamic caliphate and mm. the uh, Arab conquests. And I was reading about Muhammad's people, Quraysh, seeing themselves as like the Ishmaelites, the, the people who were disliked by everyone. Nobody liked them and they didn't like everyone else. They were just a tough people to get along with. Yeah, the Millwall of their era. And Exactly. And so that just reminded me. I mean, I watch a lot of sport. I always have done. And I thought, this, they're just like Millwall. The Millwall's <laughs> terrorist chant is no one likes us, we don't care. And... Okay, that joke, well, I, I talked about it with my American editor. The American edition of the book, she said, nobody knows who Millwall are. I said, you're surprised, actually. There's quite a lot of football fans in the US. And I, I said, she said, well, just take it out. There's no point having this joke. I said, I'm going to leave it in because if you get it, it's quite funny. If you don't get it, who cares? It's in a footnote. You just skip past it. So, uh, you know, you have to be careful with these jokes is what I'm saying. Mm. But I, I'm glad I made them because one of the purposes of the book is to make people realise that the Middle Ages is, is to kind of bring the Middle Ages home yeah. a bit. To make people are people. Yeah, yeah. Why do so many popular historians, and I, I must tread carefully here because I know you've worked with some of them, why do they end up, let us say, on the eccentric end of the pundit scale? Is there, is there also a danger that by, by surrounding yourself with lives that are no longer real, with the stories of the dead, with two-dimensional beings contained in tomes, you become desensitized to real lives and you end up just not understanding why something would give offense? Because, you know, the people you write about have on the whole been dead for hundreds of years. So you just... It doesn't compute when people get upset when you say something about people today. That, that could be one reason. I mean, I would have said 20 years ago that the reason was that most of them came out of academia and academia was, you know, by its nature, just quite fractious and poisonous and, and full of people having angry and quite vicious personal disputes with one another, you know. That's not so true anymore, and more popular historians are of my kind of background, in which I, you know, had a, a good education, but have, have never been uh, a working academic. It may now have something to do with simply the fact that public discourse is so infected by the algorithms of social media. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I did a recent interview with a wonderful Turkish author, Daphne Suman, and we compared the bits about the Ottoman Empire missing from my Greek history high school book mm-hmm. with the bits missing from her Turkish one. And we found that together, <laughs> they came quite close to the to a sort of complete history, <laughs> but apart, nowhere near. Which bit largely missing from her history books would you personally fight for the restoration of? Well, one of the parts of history that uh, that I think is is worth paying more attention to is actually something I, I wrote about initially with my book about the Templars and then again with Crusaders, and that was the Reconquista. And I, I suppose everything from the Arab conquests as they push out of North Africa into Europe mm. and the end of the Reconquista in 1492, it's incredibly important in European history. And it's also incredibly important in understanding the history of uh, relationships between, quote unquote, Islam and the West are not simply confined to uh, Syria, Palestine, Jerusalem, Egypt, you know, that, that crusading and the idea of the Crusades has a very important presence within European history. And that it's not simply a clash of civilizations when you start to study mm. it in that way. Yes. I think that, uh, yes, I think that that's one part that I had never encountered in my schooling mm. whatsoever. Just, it just wasn't there. But then again, when I was at school, and that was, you know, I, I left high school in 1999, I'd only really studied the Tudors and the Nazis. So um, almost everything in Powers and Thrones could be added to the history books. I think it's somewhat different now. One of the things that really struck me was how much of that millennium was shaped by chance. In looking at it from a distance, the human will to make something happen barely made a dent compared to, as we were saying, to weather patterns and pandemics and and here we are with weather patterns and pandemics and are you optimistic that we can this time make a dent in that and shape it according to our will or are we as much subject to the fates as people were a thousand years ago well today it seems that we have uh, an extraordinary um, technological ability to control the these big moving historical factors and features that have shaped human history forever. Okay, you know, we're no longer prisoners of geography in the sense that we once were. We can build tunnels through mountains and bridges, enormous bridges over spans of water and travel the world more or less as we please. Mm. If a dangerous pandemic disease sweeps across the world, partly as a result of the uh, ability to travel easily around the world, we can within a year develop a vaccine that will more or less neutralise it. Climate change we we don't just have to sit there and accept that it's coming. There is the, the belief in the possibility that we can change our behaviour and act as a global society to change our behaviour if we want to. That being said, 
the oldest argument in historiography is between great men and great forces, right? Mm. And the oldest answer to that question is that all of history is an interplay between great men and great forces. And I think, so as, as we've seen, I think in the early years of the 21st century, yes, we're subject to great forces, climate change, pandemic disease, and so, and so forth. But we are really also much more sensitive to oddball individuals being in positions <laughs> of enormous power uh, than we might have thought we were, let's say, in the 1990s. It, it, you know, a Trump or a Biden being in charge of the United States does make a profound difference. And I think one of the lessons that my friends who are sort of ancient and classical historians have, have taken away from the last, say, 10 years is that all of those uh, writers about m- mad Roman emperors who seem completely larger than life and and semi deranged, wielding power in the most atrocious <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, Those writers might not have been making it up quite as much as we thought they were. You know, if you did a Michael Wolf book and and about Trump, the Trump presidency, and told everybody that it was actually about a kind of first or a second, a second or third century uh, Roman <laughs> emperor. <laughs> You know, it's, yeah, uh, you know. I know exactly what you mean. Going back to Empress Theodora and Procopius, I'm sorry, I am a little bit obsessed, but I want to give listeners a flavour. So she's described as a former child prostitute who specialised in anal sex, progressing to a teenage streetwalker open to group sex known for cracking dirty jokes, eventually blossoming into, and I quote, a burlesque dancer who trained geese to peck barley grains from her knickers. In the words of a musical number from Gypsy, you gotta have a gimmick. You are, it seems to me, and I mean this in the best way conceivable, a celebrity gossip columnist trapped (laughs) inside a historian. And I say in the best way possible because so much of what we know about the past is terrible gossip. And the best history teachers engage with that, while the ones only interested in academia somehow suck any joy out of it, desiccate it to a state of unpalatability. But on the flip side, do you ever worry that you sacrifice accuracy for impact? Are you ever tempted? I try and have it both ways, okay? So uh, (laughs) you've got to be pragmatic about this. I write books I want people to read. Yes. I hear, I've heard again and again and again and again and again in my life and my career. People come to my shows or uh, they read the books, they watch TV shows, and they say, you know what? When I was at school, history was the, the, the subject I hated most. It was so boring. I, it, I, the teacher couldn't get me interested in it. I gave it up as soon as I could. It's taken me 40, 50 years to come back to it. And now I've sort of discovered your books or, or whoever's books they're reading. And I, I love it. It's, it just comes alive. Okay, so in order to bring people into the material, you've got to retain the colour and work with the colour and work with the scandalous chroniclers and gossip columnists and say, look, this is what people were writing. It might not be true, but look how wild this world seemed to people who were living in it. There's a a quote attributed to Jay-Z, which uh, I think may be true. He's talking about how you get people involved in in like conscious social activism through Mm. the medium of rap music. And he says, you've got to feed them sugar. 
you've got to get you're going to be talking about like fast cars and women and guns and the glamorous lifestyle of a former crack dealer in order to draw people into the music to then sort of give slip in this kind of social conscious message that you want to take to the wider world and i, rem- I remember I was watching some documentary about Jay-Z and it was, it was reported speech, but I thought that's it. That's what I'm doing. You've got to feed him sugar. You're a crossover artist, basically, as much <laughs> as, as much as, you know, the, the classical purists like me frown on the three tenors concert. The fact is that it brings an entire new audience of millions of people into a thing that's usually the preserve of a very, very limited group. And that, surely must be celebrated do you long to move into fiction in fact what is next for you i'm writing a trilogy of historical fiction (laughs) 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 i've just been working i've just closed the chapter now i'm not going to stop writing history books i mean this is not quentin tarantino giving up after film 10 but it is a big book because it's a sort of dividing point for me personally in terms of what my writing career i'm writing three novels, I'm the first of three novels at the moment, set in the Hundred Years' War. Each one will take a, takes one quite small bit of the Hundred Years' War, so less a few months in each case, and puts together a view of the Hundred Years' War from the eyes of participants. And I'm doing something quite, which feels quite different to any, his, any medieval fiction I've read before, and this is a, a real new intellectual and writing challenge and is definitely not going to be another sort of 800 page book but is taking at least as much probably more effort on my part to um to work out i i can't wait to read it dan i can't tell our listeners the joy and glint that there is in your writing you you drop these massive bombs and move on as if you know, shrugging your shoulders as if to say, who, me? I didn't say anything. It's wonderful. Dan, thank you for your time and for your remarkable book. I am off to start training my geese. (laughs) Thank you, Alex, for those wonderful questions. Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages is out today. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. If not for the monks, Dave Eggers once wrote about the Middle Ages, everything the world had learned might have been lost. Perhaps that is the most profound wisdom we can distill from our history, the biggest lesson those thousand years can impart, and a very pertinent one in our times, that progress is not monodirectional. Darkness always lurks, and whatever light has been gained can be lost unless actively tended to. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.